Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Well, my friends, okay, um, we're on uh, our third week of moving through the Book of Romans, a very intense and heavy text, and I, I love it. So uh, I'm just going to open, uh, begin this sermon with a, a word of prayer, and then I'll read to you um, a passage from Romans 2, and then mainly, though, today we're on Romans 3. So let's pray. Uh, God of all creation, God of uh, the ancient sort of cloud of witnesses of our faith, the God who's gone before, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, but also the God of Ina, Addie, and Raven, <laughs> the God of the fresh new thing each day, each generation, each week. I pray that you would help us in this moment to be uh, surrendered to your work in our midst that we would trust uh, by faith alone that you, uh, that you have a plan and that it is our job to pay attention and be in awe and be filled with gratitude for the works that you are doing and continue to do. So thank you so much for this uh, community. I pray for all the kids that they would feel safe and loved and at ease. And I pray for all of us that we would encounter your word Thank you for Jeff and Sarah and being willing to step out into a new thing and also an old thing, 10 years. I pray that we would all feel hope uh, for the joy that we will harvest um, after many seeds we've sown in tears. Pray in the name of our wounded healer, Jesus Messiah. Amen. All right. The book of Romans, um, it's an intense text, and if you weren't here, I'm not going to do what I want to do, like as if this was a lecture where I just like quickly recap everything. I won't, but um, all, all that to say is Paul is a very, very, very clever uh, thinker and, and lover of, of the Christian churches, and he has a divided community before him, uh, and in this community there are people who are really afraid of the new thing and people who are uh, really afraid of not being welcome and accepted into the old thing. And when we sometimes think the option is either the old thing, we cling to it, or the new thing, we just like scrap everything for it, Paul, I think, is proposing a a third way and suggesting that God has a dream that's bigger than our dream uh, and that God sees something in our neighbor that is bigger than what we have seen. And so he does this really clever thing. Uh, In Romans chapter 1, he sort of uh, speaks as a, a Jewish man to a community that would be largely Jewish, Although with Gentiles in their midst, he speaks rather crudely uh, about the stereotypes about Gentiles. And interestingly, what he does after that, when he, I'm sure some of the uh, Jewish people in the congregation were like, yeah, that's right, those people. Uh, He then turns and he's like, well, let's talk about ourselves now that we've clearly established that we can judge. Let's judge ourselves now and see how, how we measure up to the same bar that we have set for the rest of the world. Um, and it's profound. He's, he's not trying to just like shame one group and then shame the other and be like, oh, you all need Jesus and then leave. That'd be great. Like, that would be easy. I could do that. But that's not what he's doing. It's something more beautiful than that. So um, after he has kind of 
unpacked some of the stereotypes about some of the newcomers uh, to the, the Christian church in Rome, he now uh, draws our attention, um, speaking, and he's speaking as a Jewish man to predominantly Jewish people in this congregation, and he will now talk about kind of the self-righteousness of the people who've been part of the community the longest. So um, you can read with me. This is just uh, nine verses from chapter two. So you can see a little bit of this clever thing he does. He says, now you, um, if you call yourself a Jew, and if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know that his will, if you, sorry, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in dark, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so he's done this clever thing in community, a very non-anxious and brave thing, is he's like, yes, there's a bunch of new people. And we are all afraid of the crazy, wild, extreme examples of what new things and what change might represent. Imagine being like a, a Jewish community for so many generations where you had very, very strict rules about who's allowed in and who's not. Very strict rules about what makes you righteous and what makes for unrighteousness. Um, and then suddenly this wild new thing that doesn't entirely align with all the scriptures, uh, uh, as far as maybe some of the people are concerned, you have this day of Pentecost where people start speaking to each other in their mother tongue, in the other's mother tongue, and they start kind of ex experiencing community, and, and it grows very quickly. Like, think back to early Acts. The church, uh, for a time, grows very, very quickly. It would be terrifying and overwhelming. Like, what? where does it end? How much change? Does our identity get swallowed up? Do we dissolve? Do we just surrender to the new thing? There's fear. Um, and so Paul witnessing in his own life um, the, the work of the Spirit in terms of joining people together, um, writes this letter to the Roman church. And he says, listen, yes, we can, we can talk about all the fearful and terrifying things that the big new change represents. Um, but, but instead of focus outwardly, let's look inwardly for a moment. And he's like, sometimes it's easy to glorify the past and mythologize the past. Sometimes I think um, nostalgia can stop us from feeling intimacy and community and belonging because we cling to what we once knew. And, and a new thing, um, I read this quote this week that said, nobody fears change. That's not a thing. You don't fear change. You grieve loss. And change always comes with loss. It does, no matter what. Um, I think my little four-year-old boy, bless his heart, I'm at Ikea with him like a week ago, and he's, he's allowed one of the little stuffies. And you would think this makes me amazing as a mom, right? Because I'm like, you can have a stuffie. It's not Christmas. It's not your birthday. But if there's six stuffies to choose from, the four-year-old brain cannot comprehend that he gets a stuffie. All he can comprehend is he now has to grieve the loss of four stuffies. Before going into Ikea, no stuffies. Stuffies weren't on the table. We leave Ikea with a stuffy in, under one arm in big alligator tears, grieving the loss of the others. Because I said you had a choice. And it's funny how the change, the change is a new stuffy. Isn't this good? No, the change is I had to let go of four others. And that was a grief. And it was like, why did you bring me here? And I laugh and I think, 
We do that in our life all the time. There's a new thing, a beautiful thing. Uh, and, and sometimes, but holding to that new thing and being open to the new thing, there's a grief. And Paul knows that. And so fortunately, it's not a short letter. It's a long letter. He gives lots of space for truth telling. And so he starts off in this letter um, acknowledging that sometimes we can be so focused on what's wrong with them. I'm going to use us versus them language. We can focus so hard on what's wrong with them uh, that we fail to really look at our own affairs. In Acts 15, there's this beautiful scene. It's called the Jerusalem Council where they have to decide. It's like a big assembly meeting. I don't know. <laughs> it's like a big assembly and all the... The big leaders, the big important people all get together and they're going to have a vote on who's allowed in and who's not. And it's a concern. It's a big deal. And that we've built for years to this council on who's in and who's out. And at first they're like, well, we have the scriptures, we have the law of Moses, so clearly you have to be circumcised and you have to eat certain things and practice certain rituals. That's clear, scripture, tradition. Um, but then Peter gets up there and he just got stories. He doesn't really have like... You know, he doesn't really like unpack scriptures or like exegete Greek verbs or something to prove his point. He just has these amazing stories of the new people and the new things. And at the end, at the Jerusalem Council, they all vote, surprisingly, I'm sure even to themselves, to welcome and accept the new thing. Um, but before Peter tells a story, he does this beautiful thing where he's like, brothers, let's admit it. We haven't been having the best time on our own without these people. He's like, think about it. You, you kind of make it sound like we have to protect this perfect thing, but none of us have been able to bear the weight. None of us have been able to live up to our own expectations of ourselves. This has been a hard time for all of us. Why would we put the weight of the dream of community that we were exhausted under on these new people? And it's like this little intimate moment between Peter and his own brothers. And he's like, let's tell the truth. We've been having a hard time as well. And at the end of the vote, the council overwhelmingly votes, yes, let's uh, move past this long-held tradition of circumcision for all who would you know, be, belong to this group. Uh, and there's that moment. And I think this is the moment in Romans where he's like, brothers, we've, not, we've been having a hard time too. So rather than focus on the big scary thing that the new people represent, we could just take a moment and tell the truth that we've also been praying for God to do something. And so there's this beautiful thing. And, and he's like, listen, we've not done well. And they also, the new people represent maybe a not going well-ness. Does that make sense? I don't know. Anyway, moving on. In Romans chapter 3, then, he builds his argument to finally the big verse that and everyone knows from Romans. Um, All have sinned and fall short. The glory of God is in this verse. So maybe you'll hear it new for the first time. And it's long. I'm sorry. I do this every week at Ambrose. I'm like, a, a good professor never just stands and reads from the slide. And I say that before I read from the slide. And now I'm going to do that again. But here we are. It's okay. Uh, Romans 3, 9 to 27. Spoiler, it takes two slides, the whole thing. So there's a lot of words here. That's okay. Paul writes, uh, and, and a, a bunch of it is quoting Isaiah. But he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? And he means we, the Jews, like we, the people who've been in community the longest. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike all, are all under the power of sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Um, I like in the NRSV, it says there's no one who shows kindness. It's like, oh, that's true sometimes. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Next slide. Not as long. I blew up the font. So, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith until Jesus, until, help, help me, this righteousness is given through faith, oh, in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And hear that, like, it's like Jew, Gentile, what category am I? And I'm a Christian. So here, like, long standing members of a movement and brand new members of a movement. There's no difference between them, Paul says. That's a radically provocative thing to say. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have, have sinned and fall short the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No because of the law that requires faith. Now, theologically, lots happening here. Very rich task, shedding of blood, justification, sanctification, like Theology 101 to read this. I'm not going to do that, but I wanted to draw your attention to what he's saying is same with the passage I showed before, like none of us is just crushing it. Like none of us, there's no, there's no one community, there's no one demographic, there's no one group that's like, you know, it's been working so, so, so well. We have no reason to change it. Um, he's, he's calling that out. He's like, we've all sinned. And it's probably not all have sinned, every individual. He's probably talking to his particular church setting, saying all, both the Jews and the Gentiles, both the people who've been here forever and the people who are brand new. Um, we're all struggling. And it's way easier to look at the other person's struggles than to focus on your own. The book of Romans is a sober, truth-telling book. Paul knows that nothing kills community like nostalgia for how it used to be. But, and Paul knows this, and I think later Bonhoeffer picked it up and said it even better. Can you say that about Paul and Bonhoeffer? I don't know. <laughs> I'm off script. But um, on the flip side, like on one hand, nothing kills community like nostalgia. The good old days, back how it used to be. In my day, you know, these are the phrases of nostalgia. But um, uh, Bonhoeffer said, um, there's nothing that kills community like the dream of community. Nothing kills community like the dream. Because you can just be like, we were supposed to be here. Or like, I thought it would be like this. And sometimes I think maybe, you know, if you've been a part of it, like, like everyone in this room, I don't know which way you relate to this dynamic between Paul and these churches, but you could be like, all of a sudden this new thing happens in this group that you've been a part of for a long time, and it, it's scary, and you want to buckle down and protect the thing, and protect the group, and mythologize the group, and feel nostalgia for how it was before all these new things started happening. And when you do that, when you mythologize something from the past, you, your brain immediately forgets all of the struggles and all of the hard times. You forget every AGM. 
<laughs> before. <laughs> you know, you forget all the other issues. We mythologize the past. But sometimes you could come into a new community, and everybody that joins a new community has a story, often of harm experienced in a former community. So they're coming in on, on the tail end of what some people in this community are about to begin. And they come in and they have a dream. They're like, this community will be better. I thought this one would be different. This one had, you know, little kids at the front. So I thought it meant it was always perfectly kid-friendly. And there's like a dream that stirs. And both groups, it's like the nostalgia for how it was and the dream of how it ought to be is going to crush the beautiful, real Christ-filled thing in front of you right now. And Paul knows this. And he's like, let's tell the truth about this. Let's look. None of us can boast. You can't boast because you've been here longer. You can't boast because you got stories from the church you just left. You can't boast. You can't boast that you followed all the rules because you didn't. You can't boast that you have it all together. So he calls for a pause. Let's work with what we have is the invitation. And what we have is the spirit of God that rose Jesus from the dead. So we might, it might be worth paying attention. We fear change because we grieve loss. And the grief, um, the grief that we feel uh, is often a, a, a grief over the loss of belonging and connection. There's a fear. There's a fear that there's going to be so many new people that show up to this movement that I won't matter anymore and no one will remember all the hard things I did and all the, the suffering I, I endured and all of the hard work I did um, before they arrived. And there's a grief that that place of belonging, that place of, of being honored, that place of connection would be lost. Um, and I've experienced in my life, <laughs> grief left untamed can sometimes lead to anger and blame. <laughs> untamed. I said, I said untamed. What's grief untamed? We I didn't mean it that way. My note says grief left unnamed. That's what I meant. No, okay. Grief left unnamed can lead to anger and blame. So let me now tell you a personal story. I had a conflict a few years ago with someone in the church world. And keep in mind, I've worked for three different denominations. I've taught at Ambrose and Alberta Bible College. I've been a part of church groups and groups of church people for my whole life. And so if you try to imagine who this person is, you'll be wrong. Because this person is an archetype. There are many of these persons in my life. I had a conflict a few years ago with a person. And what you need to know is uh, demographically, all right, this person is older than me, and he's a man, and he's white. And, and when he looks at me, he might be like, she's a woman, and she's younger, and she's got tattoos. I, I don't know. I could put other things in there, but it might make me look bad. So him and I are having a conflict. It's kind of the older white man and the young liberal woman. And we're both in the church world, and we both love the church so much, and we both have dreams and nostalgia. So uh, he represented to me a boys' club that I would never get into no matter what, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how many, how many degrees I got, no matter how many books I read, no matter how many ancient languages I learned, I was never, ever going to be accepted into this boys' club. I was bitter and hurt and angry um, because I knew that I would never be let into this club, that the boys, the old boys' club, as I called them, uh, would take one look at me and say, nope, they would label me immediately, and they would decide together that I am at best a harmless young lady and at worst an enemy come to destroy the family and the bedrock of society with my liberal feminist views. In some ways, when they view me that way 
and they view themselves, the old boys club, as protecting their club from me, you know, the one who will destroy the bedrock of society, the club can start to exist for no other reason than to protect itself from me. You know, a club can suddenly exist just to keep, you know, the woke neo-Marxists, is that what we're, we are? Like, like myself, out. And then they're about what they're against, not what they're for. And if in the middle of this conflict I was having um, with this a fellow uh, brother in the Lord, if you and I went for a walk and we were close friends, you might catch me seething with frustration and anger, and you might catch me labeling him and using things like privilege and patriarchy, white man, and using labels myself. But if you walked with me a little longer, as in we did the big loop all the way to the Douglas firs, not just stopping at 83rd, my anger and my seething and my stereotypes and my gossip and my slander would have given way eventually to tears. A sense of rejection, abandonment, and shame. Because I wanted to not be labeled, I wanted to be given a chance. I wanted to be heard and I wanted to have a place. But Looking at it from his side in the debate, I represented something just as scary. I didn't represent an old club that he was trying to get in. I represented a future that in his wildest fears was a future that hated men. I represented a fast-paced move towards new ideas that felt overwhelming. For him, it was fear. He was afraid that he couldn't keep up, that he couldn't, he wasn't getting the jokes. He didn't know how to participate in the conversation. He's like, I don't know, my pronouns, what? Like, he, he just felt that fear. Like, I can't keep up. A fear of not getting the jokes, of not fitting in, a fear of being too old, at, of being at best irrelevant, and a fear of at worst being seen as a white supremacist, uh, ignorant, simply for existing and showing up uh, as, as a man who's 15, older, 15 years older than me. And I know that he could go for a walk with his people on his side, and he could seethe, and he could call me uh, the names and gossip and slander. I don't know, snowflake, <laughs> libtard? I don't know. That's like one people say. That's one. Um, get mad, and if you see a, a young woman who has tattoos that's into the earth and wants to be in the church, you maybe call her a witch. Um, but just like me, if you walked with him longer than the, the small loop, the seething would turn to tears, revealing the wound. The fear of not belonging, the fear of not mattering, the fear of not being given a chance simply because you're a man and you're white. And a good mediator, a good friend, could see our fears were the exact same and our longing was the exact same. Him and I were both longing for a life together where we both matter, where we both get to play a part, where we both are safe to open to the newness of one another, and we both feel safe within the confines of a relationship built on trust and mutual respect. The fears were the same. The yearning for belonging was the same. And it's easy, if you're friends, if you were friends with one of us, to protect the one against the other or to tell both that you're both great uh, and then like avoid the conversation <laughs> otherwise. But I think what Paul does, and something I've been inspired in studying Paul and, and in the book of Acts actually the last few years, is Paul sees the dynamic play out. 
he sees this this conflict. It's an age-old conflict between me and uh, uh, this man. It's an age-old conflict, that, that this exact same conflict happening in the church in Rome. There's Jew versus Gentile, the old trusted way versus the fast-paced new community, the new thing. And it's scary. And he sees it, and he sees both of these groups have the same longing, and they both have the same pain. They both have the same fear. And he notices something. Paul looks around at the world, and he sees something that if you and I tell the truth, we see too. When change comes or when there's like conflict in a community, the easiest, most natural thing to do is push for either assimilation or segregation. There's a difference. Assimilation, that's the thing. And the church in the West has been very good at that. Residential schools are based on forced assimilation. A lot of missions trips, a lot of missionary endeavors are have been, not all by any means, but a lot have been on the idea of assimilation. Everyone is welcome to become like us. And if not, there's a church down the road. Segregate. Assimilate or go somewhere else. And that's, the, that's it. Has the, that's been our imagination for so long, is like, you are welcome to become just like us. And that's what the Jerusalem Council, it was like, they're all welcome to get circumcised and follow our laws and be like us. That's fine. Paul's like, what if we didn't assume assimilation was God's dream for all people? Well, there can be a Jewish church here and a Gentile church over there. They can have the building at 10 a.m. and they can have the building at 4. <laughs> that could be the other side of the dream. Assimilate or segregate. Uh, residential schools are forced assimilation. Reservations are forced segregation. Apartheid, forced segregation. And I, I think um, that really breaks my heart because we do it. We do it to ourselves. We do it to each other. We do it in community all the time. We have something we disagree about. It might be a political thing. Um, it might be a, a social thing, a healthcare thing. I don't know. And we disagree. And then it can be about like coming up with clever arguments, apologetics, whatever, to try and force people to come to our side and see it our way, or we just agree to disagree and go separate ways. But the Holy Spirit, we have to believe, we have to believe the Holy Spirit is up to something bigger, unimaginably more, um, unimaginably bigger than what we can see. If you follow along the, the early church, if you follow along the epistles, the Holy Spirit has no interest in forced assimilation and, and, and forced segregation. While the church is fighting over whether you should become more like us or we should become more like you or whether we should just start our own thing without you, Paul is remembering Pentecost. Paul is remembering a community that speaks in each other's mother tongue. Paul is remember the, remembering the Holy Spirit joining people together to create a new thing. Instead of like, you know, Sarah, come join my cool club of people like me. You're already a lot like me. I don't know. I, it's, just, it's really bad to pick names. I mean, like, in or, in, instead of say, um, someone has to become just like me or, or meet somewhere else, Paul imagines that uh, we form an entirely new thing. And that's what, what a beautiful thing. I imagine, I don't know, it's been a long time since I was a new person at church. It's been a really long time since I was at church for the first time on a Sunday. And like that mix of like, I want to be seen and loved, but I want to be an anonymous. You know, the weird, like, thing. It's been a long time since I was there. And so sometimes I can forget um, the amount of courage it takes to be that person. And I imagine the dream isn't like, oh, you're, like, shopping, right? I'm like, sorry, I'm, like, out looking right at you, Riley. I'm sorry. I love you. I'm like, who else? Imagine. You're not sitting there like, are these people good enough and safe enough so that I could completely adapt and become exactly like all of them? 
that's not the vision that anyone has when they first appear. But imagine a community that opened itself to welcome this new person, and in the act of welcoming the new person, the entire community became something new. And it was like, it would be worth embracing the new thing with every new person, every new, and, and if you've ever, let's say, if, if, if you ha have become a parent, there's two people, and then a baby comes and joins the family, both parents become different people. The entire family changes. You're not looking at that little baby like, well, here's what you're going to need to know. We go to bed at 9, we wake up at 6. <laughs> we poop on the toilet in this family, and we eat here, and the crumbs stay on your plate. It doesn't work. Instead, the parents learn. Everybody adapts. Everything becomes something new. And I think the spirit imagines a community that is open, that is becoming new. Not throwing out the old, becoming new, but I'm, not, I'm skipping ahead. So imagine, Paul can see when he, when he prays for this church in Rome, these churches in Rome. He sees a new thing where all are reconciled, where everyone has a seat at the table and everyone matters in unique and powerful ways. you got to think about that. God's vision for all of creation, for all of humanity, for the climax of all history, is the reconciliation of all things. So the wrath of God, Paul says earlier in chapter 2, is not to punish those people, it, it, he says, um, the kindness of God is meant to lead to repentance. That's what it says in Romans 2.4. It says, do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The love of God opens doors. It doesn't shut them. The love of God leads to generosity and hospitality. The love of God joins you to your neighbor. The love of God shapes us towards humility. The love of God dreams of joining us together in deeper ways than we had imagined. That's I, I, Jeff, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you picked God of the City. That's been my song so many times while pastoring awake and through hard times and good times. It's like there's more to be done here. The Spirit knows it, and the Spirit sees the dream, sees the vision. The Spirit knows um, if you're new, the broken road that brought you here. And the Spirit knows if you were a founding member of this community, um, every moment of, of silent, uh, of invisible work you've done, of silent uh, angst and, and prayers and worry that you've experienced. And I think there's a dream for us that's bigger than anything we've dreamed. And so, um, in conclusion, that's such a dangerous thing to say. <laughs> in my earnest attempt at a conclusion, um, turn with me to Romans 4. <laughs> I'm joking, but I'm not. <laughs> I am, but don't worry, I'm not, I don't have a slide for it or anything, but uh, in, in continuing his argument, Paul turns and he, and he speaks directly to the, the Jewish people in the community, the long-standing members, and he says, hey, let's look at the father of our faith. Let's look at the oldest standing member of our faith, Abraham. That would feel nice. It's like, oh, let's think of the founder. Let's think of like the original thing. Um, in, in the beginning of chapter four, he simply says this, when, what then are we to say was gained by Abraham? Which you might be wondering in some way, if I'm like, just welcome the new thing. Let's just become something new for new things. It's like, yeah, but what about the thing that brought us together? What about our tradition? What about our, like, you know, our history? Good question. Paul knows that's what you're asking. So right here, he's like, so then what are we to say was... What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
And then a few verses later, he says, how then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So, oh, the whole community is like, but Abraham, the scriptures are clear, the tradition's clear. Our righteousness, our identity, our goodness, our dream, our vision comes from this old way. And he's like, yeah, you're right. Abraham is the father of our faith and, and, and righteousness was bestowed on him, but not, not after he was circumcised before. And, and the, wilder, the wildest thing about Abraham as the father of our faith is if you've ever like just perused Genesis lately, I don't know. It's pretty trippy. The whole story begins with this guy named Abram who lives in Babylon with his family and his community and all of his things. He, he, he's from Ur of the Chaldeans. And God appears to him and says, Abraham, get up, pack your bags, let's go. You're going to travel a land you've never traveled before into a lifetime of unexpected newness. And it, from what the story suggests, he packed up his bags, his possessions, um, some of his family members, and he went. Into the unknown. That has to go there, right? I don't know. Like, he just travels into the unknown. He leaves everything familiar behind and goes. And that's the father of our faith. So Paul says, let's be traditional and do something new. Let's honor the scriptures and radically change our minds. Let's honor tradition. And here we are in 2022, and, and I don't know, fill in the blank, what is the big cultural debate both locally as an at Awaken and like across North America for Christians right now? In some way, it's protecting the old thing and opening to the new thing. And I say, let's honor tradition, let's honor scripture. Look at the early church. They had a wild encounter of the Holy Spirit um, being revealed to them through a bunch of new people. And they had to decide between circumcision, honoring long-standing tradition, and the new thing the Spirit was doing. And recorded in our scriptures, canonized in our holy text, is the story of a community radically breaking with tradition. So let's honor tradition. Paul's like, let's, let's talk about Abraham. It's profound. Let's do it the old way. Let's do it the Abraham way. Let's do it the Moses way. Speaking of, you know, the father of the law who left everything. Let's do it the Paul way. Let's do it the early church way. So this week, my prayer for you as your pastor is that you would start to name the fear. The fear of change. The loss. Name it. Just notice it in yourself, the fear. They're like, well, what, what, what next? Whatever the fear is. The fear of losing. Um, the fear of becoming invisible. Name the fear. And as you name the fear, notice the yearning behind it. All these new people come and then I won't exist anymore. So what's the yearning? To exist. To have a place. To feel important. To be seen. To feel honored for my work. Name the fear and name the yearning. Just bring it. Bring it all the way up. And invite the spirit into those places. And this week, call that prayer. Because I know that the Spirit is doing something in our midst, and, and, and no one here wants anyone's worst fears to come true. No one here wants that. We want a bigger table than we had imagined before, where there's a seat of honor for everyone, and where we can harvest with laughter the bounty that we sowed with tears. And so let's pray together, and then Kathy's going to come up and lead us in communion. All right. God of all creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
author of our story. I pray that you would protect us from nostalgia, that we might love well what's in front of us. And I pray also that you might protect us from the dream of what we could be. And so help us to make space for what is here right now. Make us a people slow to speak and quick to listen. Fill us with a love that casts out all fear, fear of the unknown, fear of the future, fear of becoming irrelevant or blamed when it doesn't go as planned. I pray that your script of abundance would outrun the scarcity one we're familiar with. I pray that you would surprise us, Holy Spirit. Surprise us with new friendships, with new possibilities, with new roles in your church. Help us to give the welcome we ourselves long to receive. And though we all have sinned, though all of us have given in to our insecurities and our gossip and our slander and our petty attempts to secure a spot at a small table, I pray that your love would cast out these fears and lead us to the table you've set for us. We trust the work of your spirit in our midst. We trust you to call us by your name, to clothe us in your mercy. And so we prayed that you would give us eyes to see the person in front of us and eyes to see the person that's far more expansive than the one we imagine is in front of us. Give us this courage to greet the God we know and the humility to greet the God that's far more expansive than the one we think we know. Give us confidence, not in our traditions or our laws or the works of our own hands, but give us confidence in our faith, our faith that your dream is bigger than ours and our, our faith that you are in our midst drawing us toward life together in you. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.